0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In today's Gospel, the Lord Jesus gives us signs of the end. It's important for us on this last day of of the liturgical year before Advent begins, the liturgical New Year, which matters a lot more than the civic New Year, because liturgical things always matter much more than civic things. That at the end of the liturgical year we focus, or the church focuses rather our mind on the end of all things. On the closing of history. And in fact when we begin Advent we'll focus on that as well. We'll be focusing on Christ coming to us not so much at Christmas initially but at the end of time. And it's important for us to mark the things that the Lord tells us will happen on that day. the Lord tells us that as the end draws near we will see the abomination set up in the holy place. He tells us in other places there will be false Christs, false prophets, that there will be great signs, prodigies, but also many, many errors that they'll multiply. He tells us in another place that Nation will rise against nation. There will be famines and plagues. He says, woe to those in those days uh, who are... It's frightening, frightening words that he says. Terrifying words. He says, woe to those in those days who are with child. Pray also that it might not have to happen in winter or on a Sabbath. And he he gives us uh, a, a frightening picture of the end saying in fact that further things will happen that the sun will be obscured the, the the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and everything will be shaken then the sign of the son of man will appear in heaven and then all of the tribes of the earth will wail as they see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and majesty and he says of that final time that if it were not shortened for the sake of the elect, even they would be led astray were it possible. He says, learn to watch. Should mark well what the Lord says. Should mark very well what the Lord says. Although, when we look around, we we can certainly see some of these things coming to pass we can certainly see unrest we can certainly see false christs around us in many places false prophets anyone who promises us a utopia anyone who promises us a world that will work if only we hand ourselves only over to it entirely is a false prophet and a false christ and we see that around us very often certainly we see that uh, whether we're looking at advertisements and commercials The gospel of comfort that promises us a life that is perpetually at peace if only we hand over our hearts in the form of our money. We see that in governments that promise across the world a life of perfect, perfect happiness and peace if only we submit, if only we hand over our hearts to whatever party or to whatever form of government. And we see as well, some false prophets, even within the church. We see false Christs sometimes within the church who would hand over the truth of the gospel for social position or for convenience, for acceptance by the greater world. We see nation rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And so we should understand that it is very close. But if we look into history as well, we understand that it has always been so. This is not the first age in which there have been these factors. This is not the first age in which nation is warred against nation. It's certainly not the first age in which false prophets have arisen or false Christs. And it's certainly not the only age in which even false prophets have risen within the church. And in fact, all of these things, Christ said, would be accomplished before the end of the generation that heard him. And so, in fact, they were. We go even back to that first generation of Christians that witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem. There, even in their own time, there were false Christs. We find them in the Acts of the Apostles, if you read through. You see particularly Simon Magus, a man who tried to buy the power of the Holy Spirit from the Apostles. And then when rebuked by them, later became at least two appearances, a Christian and a leader of Christians, but in fact was the first of the heretics and the first to drag people away from the truth of the gospel into error. We saw even in that first generation of apostles, nation rising against nation. And if we read the history of the siege of Jerusalem, which happened in 70, the year 70 AD, within living memory of Jesus... We read horrible, horrible things. Horrible things. You can read the history of it in, in, uh, in Flavius Josephus, who writes that account. But be prepared. Do not read it unless you have a strong stomach. It's awful, awful stuff. <coughs> what are we to make of this? That Christ's warning to us about the end of times has come about in every generation. It has come about in every generation. I, I call to mind uh, John Twelfth, Pope John XII, who was Pope in the mid 900s and was cast out of the papal office by the clergy of the city of Rome uh, because he was known not to say Mass and not to say his divine office, to go hunting, which at the time was not permitted for clergy. And when he would play at dice, he would invoke the Greek and Roman deities. How bad does it get? how bad could it possibly get there? So it's happened before. It's happened before. Christ warned us that it would. So while it is true that the signs of the end are certainly upon us, they have been. And they always are. And we do not know when the final day will be but our job is to be prepared for it in every single age because the end has come in every age. And every soul must make that choice either for Jesus Christ or against him to submit ourselves to Christ the King or to rebel and be lost. And for us, that is the decision of the end. And yes, there will be trials and tribulations in every age and they'll be there in every time. But we can also take confidence if we see those signs around us, if we see those, those things coming up in the world and warring against what is good and noble. We can take courage in knowing that divine providence has decided that we are apparently the ones who ought to deal with them. It can be tempting for us sometimes when we look at the disarray of the world around us, inside the church, outside the church, in our nation and in the world. It can be a tempting thing to say, would that I lived in another time. Would that I lived perhaps in a more Christian age. Would that I lived in a time where it was easier to preach, to convert, when there were more things that supported a Christian life the more things that supported families, more things that supported virtue. Would that I lived in such a time. But let's cast that thought as far away from us as we possibly can. Because the Lord Jesus does not want us to live in another time. He wants us to live now. He is the one who decided that we were those who would live in this moment in history. It is by providence that you are here where you are, in this year, in this place. That is God's design. And if we have to face many difficult things in our age, and if, perhaps, we have to face the actual end of all things, we should still take courage Because if it's us that have to do it, it is because the Lord has chosen us to do it. And if the Lord has chosen us to face these things, then surely he will not leave us without the help to do so. He will never leave us without the grace necessary to face the things into which he has set us. So take courage. Take courage. Remembering also that the Lord has told us that the time would be shortened for the sake of the elect. That the time of trial would be shortened for the sake of the elect. He promised us that. And if we look again through the history of the church, we can find that every persecution has ended out of nowhere. Every great heresy has disappeared all of a sudden to be replaced by the next difficult thing, to be certain. But everything that the church has had to go through, every trial she's had to face, never lasts as long as she fears. And when it fades, it fades like mist when the sun rises. It just vanishes. Take great courage even as we think of the end of things. And remember that it is Christ the King who is in charge of all of it. That we have a good King. We have a good King who doesn't allow the difficulties of the world or the difficulties of the end of time Simply as something that will discourage, but rather as something that will finally show the virtue of God's saints to the entire world. St. Augustine writes that we should, in fact, long for the final day, that we should learn to, to desire Christ's return to us. He says, How can we claim to love the Lord Jesus and call ourselves Christians? when we tremble at the thought of his return. And there's something to that. We certainly tremble if we still have things we need to confess and to work on, virtues we need to build, and vices we need to put down, absolutely. But underneath it all, there should be a longing for our friend, our brother, our king to come back to us and to set everything right, which is what he will do. Because when he does arrive on the final day, not only will he put an end to the trial, but he will put down everything that is evil. He will bring it to light, defeat it, finally humiliate it, no matter how hidden it is. And he will take everything that is good, no matter how forgotten it is, and bring it to light and reward it. All of our desire that things go the way they ought to go will finally be met. All of our desire that things go the way they ought to go will finally be met. That desire that we have, that good be rewarded, that evil be punished, that things be as they ought to be, fair and just and true, will finally, finally be fulfilled when Christ returns. And then everything that we experience in the sacraments will meet its fulfillment as well. If you've ever made a a really good communion where you've received the Lord and experienced his closeness. You really tasted his goodness and known that the God of heaven lives in your heart as in paradise, as he says to Sister Faustina when he comes into a soul in the state of grace and Holy Communion. If you've ever made a good communion like this and experienced the goodness of God, tasted him and longed for more, and were sad when the moment passed, and said, could I not live in this moment of the Lord's closeness forever? Could I please just remain here, having received Jesus, and let everything else fall away? Lord, could you please just take me with you, that my joy will be complete? That longing, and please God, we've all experienced it at least once, that sweet, sweet, sweet longing, that comes from having touched the Lord God once. That too will be fulfilled. And that moment of being drawn up into the Lord's love will never end, but will simply expand through the heart and overwhelm everything. And in it will be one with the saints, in it will be one with all of our fellow Christians will experience a closeness of friendship and camaraderie that the world has never seen and could never provide. And the love of God will blot out everything else. That's a moment we could long for in a worthy way. And who wouldn't want that? The finest moment you've ever known in prayer deepened, intensified beyond your wildest imagining and never ending there could be nothing better he is coming back to us not to come home but to take us home with him let's ask the Lord to increase that desire for heaven in our hearts to increase our desire to go home to increase our desire to see his face and live every day in the light of heaven